For today, I chose uh, to read from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, the very familiar story of the prodigal son. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. The father then divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There, he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I am starving to death? So I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger on his, uh, a, a ring on his finger. That would be bad, a finger on his ring. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and he has come back to life he was lost and now he is found and they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field coming in from the field he approached the house and heard music and dancing he called one of the servants and asked what was going on the servant replied your, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered, slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound then the older brother was furious and didn't want to enter in but his father came and begged him He's on, he answered his father look I've served you all these years and never disobeyed your instruction You've never even given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returns, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered and fat, uh, and, uh, the fattened calf for him? Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. The word of God. Please be seated. Aristotle, the philosopher, in his book, Nicomachean Ethics, 
which I had the unfortunate privilege of studying under Dr. John Webster as a 19-year-old. Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics said that the virtue of generosity is, quote, giving to the right person the right amounts at the right time. What do you think of that? The virtue of generosity is giving to the right person the right amounts at the right time. Oh, I wish I would be really generous. <laughs> This is a very helpful definition of the virtue of generosity, especially if I'm asked something I don't want to give. Think about it for a moment. We all admire the virtue of generosity, particularly when we are on the receiving end, right? If someone is generous with us, we love it. Here's a short clip that I saw uh, on social media that kind of touches on this idea of um, generosity. The, the audio is a little tricky, but lean in and listen to this one. Uh, so now we have big news. Tommy said you caught that so Tommy brought an engagement ring to Millie and it was, it was Tommy's mom's engagement ring with three giant this was a real expensive engagement ring I just love the mom's laughter to give to the right person Millie the right amount a three diamond engagement ring at the right time when you're seven <laughs> oh yeah to be generous, to give to the right person the right amounts at the right time. We all admire the virtue of generosity. However, it is possible for the generous person to go too far like little Tommy here. You can be too generous. If someone gives excessively or lavishly, so much that they jeopardize their own financial security. Sometimes us church people are caught in that. Or if someone keeps on giving to the wrong uh, sort of person, maybe someone who's a user or, or someone who's in a codependent relationship with finances or someone who really should be responsible for their own finances, but we keep on helping them out. A generous, generous person can go too far. So what do we think of someone when they give too much, when they go too far? Do we still admire them or do we regard them as foolish, even wasteful and extravagant? To give to the right person the right amounts at the right time. This is how a wise 
and generous person shares their wealth. Now, since God is both the wisest and the most virtuous being in the universe, then we may assume that God has generosity down to a fine art, right? God would never be wasteful, lavish, reckless, or even foolish in giving, because if God acted in a foolish giving way, we would lose respect for God, would we not? So, let us consider today the gospel passage before us from Luke chapter 15, in order to learn how to give to the right people the right amount at the right time. This short reflection today uh, is inspired by my friend, Dr. Adrian Platz, who's a professor in South Africa. We studied together uh, 20 plus some years ago at college, uh, and he, he made the, the outline for, for what I'm going to share with you today. And it's based on the theologian Karl Barth, famous theologian whose doctrine of salvation, a thick volume on uh, soteriology, um, reinterpreted the parable of the prodigal son Christologically. That means in the light of Jesus. And so today, hear this parable in a very, very different way, and hopefully that will lead us to a deeper and new understanding and appreciation for this parable. There are five movements. Movement number one. Jesus took his entire inheritance and went to a faraway land to seek his fortune. Jesus went to a faraway land, took his entire inheritance to seek a fortune. So our story begins, like all good stories, long, long ago. The story of Jesus begins when Jesus, God's only son, took his entire inheritance and went to a far off land to seek his fortune. Oh, and what a fantastic inheritance this was that Jesus had. Paul writes in the book of Colossians that Jesus the Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form. What an inheritance. All the fullness of the Godhead resided in Jesus something that is so vast that it is impossible to fix a value on it, except to say that it is infinite. So what fortune then did Jesus, who had everything, come to seek in this land called earth? Who and what was Jesus looking for as he traveled into this faraway country? What possibly could have been worth the trip for our Jesus, the only Son of God? The answer is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, that says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded as citizens of Israel and foreigners to the promise of the covenant, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have now been brought near. 
Jesus, the only son with this remarkable, incredible inheritance, comes to a faraway country, and it is a, a, a remarkable journey. This Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, the heir apparent to all the treasures of the universe, he journeyed to a far-off country to seek company of the lost and forsaken humanity. Imagine, if you will, the scene which must have occurred between God, the parent, and God, the son, as they discussed this journey he would, he's about to undertake. Imagine the concerns and the anxieties God as a parent must have felt. How often has a parent sought to advise a young and inexperienced child who goes to make their way in the world, maybe going off to college? But this parent and this child, what instructions, what words of wisdom do you think God shared with God's son in these final moments together before Jesus goes to this far off country? I don't know, but as a parent, good advice may sound like this. Don't simply offer your hand of friendship to any or every new-made, unproven, and backslapping acquaintance. Make your friends prove their loyalty before you trust them with your life. That's good advice, right? Watch out who your friends are. Or maybe a parent could have advice like this. Don't waste your money on clothes and entertainment. Yeah? Or maybe a parent would say, be careful not to lend any money to anyone. I don't know if you've done this in college. Bad idea. Don't lend money to everyone. You will lose your money and your friends. And by the same token, don't fall into debt or you will never get out of it. Good advice, right? All good advice for a worldly parent any young man or young woman would do well to follow such advice. So, what advice do you think God as a parent gives Jesus, the Son? Don't offer your hand of friendship to any new-made, unproven, and backslapping acquaintance. Surely God knew that Jesus would let the likes of Peter and Judas into his inner circle of friends and that they would stab him in the back in his most critical moment. Don't lend to anyone. Imagine God's concerns and the realization that the beloved son would give away all that he had and that nothing would be left of himself and he would have to depend on the generosity of strangers. And so Jesus, God's own son, took his inheritance and traveled to a far off country to seek his fortune. And God the Father looked on helplessly. Move two. In his travels, Jesus fell into bad company and spent his fortunes on reckless living. The lifestyle of Jesus on earth was any parent's worst nightmare. If his reputation was anything to go by. It is said that you are known by the company you keep, right? And Jesus seemed to make a habit of keeping bad company. 
After all, the Gospels tell us he was traveling with ruffians, attending parties with tax collectors, having conversations with prostitutes. After all this, it is no surprise that Jesus was fast picking up a very bad reputation, as it says in Matthew chapter 11. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you're unschooled in the Levitical law, you might assume that people of Jesus' time were simply trying to badmouth Jesus with general insults. Glutton, drunkard, friend of tax collector, sinners. But no. In fact, they were accusing him of a very specific crime which has a very specific punishment in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it has the following to say about a rebellious son. And I quote Deuteronomy chapter 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take a hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. This is what the rumors about Jesus were all about in the Gospels. They were saying that the so-called Son of Man, God's only Son, was stubborn and rebellious, a glutton and a drunkard. And what punishment did the law of Moses prescribe for such a son? I continue to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. If someone guilty of a capital punishment is to be put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Jesus, God's only son with an inheritance unimaginable, foolishly keeps company with the riffraff of society. It seemed that Jesus was on the road to nowhere very fast. You're known by the company you keep, and Jesus kept bad company. In his travels, Jesus fell into bad company and spent his fortune on reckless living. Movement three. By his reckless lifestyle, Jesus incurred the wrath of the pious religious leaders and even his brothers were ashamed of him. Being a stubborn and rebellious son, Jesus did not seem to have the respect of his elders. As a young 12-year-old, advanced for his age, Jesus instructed rabbis, his elders, on the proper interpretation of the law. In fact, Jesus reserved some of his best insults for the elders, the people in the highest positions of authority, by saying things like, you are whitewashed tombstones who had mouths open like graves. Did Jesus honestly expect them not to want to kill him? It seemed that even Jesus' older brothers, his biological older brothers, didn't think much of him. John 7 says that when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, 
You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see these miracles that you do. No one who becomes a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Good old sibling rivalry between Jesus and his brothers. Older brothers do not appreciate it when younger siblings break family tradition and seem to just go on their own way. John says that Jesus' brothers did not believe him. Did they also resent him? While they worked hard in the family business, taking care of their widowed mother, Jesus was out doing his own thing. And to add insult to injury, Jesus seemed to be wasting his talents when he could have made something of himself. Respect your elders. It seemed that Jesus neither respected his elders, nor was he able to command their respect. And so Jesus incurred the wrath of his elders, as well as his own brothers. Movement four. In spite of all he had done to them, Jesus' friends abandoned him in his hour of need. We all, know, we all know the saying, beware of fair-weathered friends, right? Beware of fair-weathered friends, those who stick with you only when it's easy and convenient and you have that money. Jesus seemed to have a lot of fair-weather friends. Do whatever he tells you, Jesus' mother had instructed the servants, but when the wine stopped flowing and the food baskets were empty, no one would listen to a word that Jesus had to say. Jesus, let us make you our king, the adoring crowd would cry. But when the miracles stopped coming, they cried, crucify him. Jesus, let me be your right-hand man when you come into your kingdom, the disciples begged. But when there was no kingdom, they deserted him in a heartbeat. Oh, others will forsake you, Lord. I will never forsake you, Peter vowed. And yet, under pressure, Peter passionately denied even knowing Jesus. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. In his greatest time of need, Jesus only had one true friend left, and she was a prostitute, and just as extravagant and wasteful as him. Mark tells us that some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and money given to the poor. And they rebuked the woman harshly saying, leave. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? What she has done to me is a beautiful thing. Those two were two of a kind. Mary and Jesus, no wonder their story are told together. Friends are supposed to stand by you in your hour of need, to protect you, to stand up for you, and to support you. That's what friends are supposed to do. And in spite of all that Jesus had done for them, Jesus' friends, his disciples, abandoned him in his hour of need. Movement five. And so Jesus, custodian of this great inheritance, having spent his entire fortune on worthless friends, was starving, destitute, and left 
for dead. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain and grief. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and he was held in low esteem. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So this is where Jesus ended up. It was inevitable. Everyone saw it coming. God's only son took his entire inheritance and traveled to a faraway land to seek his fortune. And there he fell into bad company and spent all he had on reckless living. He included the wrath of his elders and even his own brothers didn't believe him. And in his hour of greatest need, even his closest friends deserted him so that Jesus finished up on the garbage dump of humankind, beaten, tortured, and left for dead. Jesus must have longed to return home. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass by me. Jesus must have realized that he'd making, uh, had made a mistake to trust his disciples with everything he had. Could you not watch with me for just one more hour? He now begged them. This is the one who had fed the 5,000 hungry people and cried. He now cries, I thirst. And the drink of vinegar they offered him was not even fit for human consumption. Like the prodigal who longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the, that the pigs were eating, Jesus cried, I thirst. And in his heart, he longed for his father to go home. One who is hung on a tree is considered cursed by God. And how cursed Jesus must have felt in those final moments. There he hung, ripped open and spilled out. An inheritance squandered, a pearl cast before swines. The treasures of the entire universe had been Jesus's, and he had given it to the wrong people in the wrong amount at the wrong time. Could a prodigal like this still be called the son of God? A seemingly lost son hung on a cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the story is not finished. Luke tells us that while he was still a far way off, his father saw him in the distance and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves and to heaven and all the angels, quickly bring out a robe, bring the best one. And put it on him. Put a, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get out the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is risen and alive again. He was lost and he is found. And all of heaven began to rejoice and celebrate. And Paul says it best. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God... 
did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But God emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted this only Son of God and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, the prodigal God. Amen.